I trust that we are gathered together this morning as a joyful people, because the Lord has seen fit to give us yet another week to sing together, to pray to Him together, and now to be fed together by His Word. And you can be opening in your Bibles with me uh, once again to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, this time to Ruth chapter 3. I was struck by some of the words that we, uh, that we sang together in our first song. We praised God this morning already uh, in this way. We said of him, fatherly he tends and spares us. Wonderful words, but they're especially uh, fitting words to return now to our study in Ruth, because as we've seen, that's exactly what the book of Ruth is. It is a case study. Uh, God on display as our father in a, this fatherly, tenderly way, uh, guiding, providing for his people. Uh, coming into chapter 3 this morning brings us into the next scene of the story. I had hoped that we would be able to cover all of this chapter in one sitting this morning, but it has not turned out that way. We will get as far as verse 13 uh, in our study. If you're open to Ruth 3, you might glance up at chapter 2, verse 20, and just remind yourself that from there to now, beginning in verse 1, three months have passed. What happened in verse 20 of chapter 2, three months ago, was that Naomi was first struck with this thought that perhaps God had not made himself the destroyer of her family. Perhaps God is still continually willing to be the rescuer of his family. She got that glimpse there, and it's been working on her now for three months as we come into chapter 3. And we're going to see this morning a Naomi with a heart that is finally warming. It's finally experiencing the frost of the bitterness that we've been seeing beginning to melt away. We're going to see that this morning. We're going to see a lot of things this morning. We're going to continue to grow in our understanding of the Jewish Redeemer laws that are really setting the framework for the outcome of this story. But we have to move through, in order to get there, a series of events that unfold here uh, that caused for the original hearers of this story, no doubt, a tremendous amount of anxiety and tense anticipation. The, the situation that's going to be given to us here in our text this morning uh, is an incredibly uh, tension-filled situation. One commentator spoke about and mused about how the original hearers would probably have been sweating by the time we're finished, they're finished hearing our text this morning because of how uncomfortable the situation is going to be and because of the thought, how is this going to turn out? There's a great deal of tension in what we're going to read. And I thought that in order to try to capture that, we might begin by simply reading aloud verses 1 to 9. Verse 9 is where the tension is going to be at its height so although we'll, we'll, we'll work our way through verse 13, let's begin by reading Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, 
but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's begin by remembering a little bit of where we were at the end of chapter 2. It's been for us, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been here, thanks to that wonderful, blessed time we were able to have last week, uh, outside all together at last. Uh, We were given a signal at the end of chapter 2, in verse 23, about the hopeful situation that they have been in, in chapter 2. We've been enjoying this setup where Ruth has been, because of what Boaz has provided for her, Ruth has been in close proximity to Boaz and has had this opportunity to be near to a kinsman redeemer and to build a relationship there, a connection. Well, we were given a signal in verse 23 that that hopeful situation had drawn to a close. We read there these words. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. That was a three-month period of time, and those three months are over. The present work for Ruth is done, and she's still living with her mother-in-law. Now, it's in the setting of that situation that we hear Naomi speak in verse 1. This is the issue that she has been watching and that she feels now the need to address. And we get that address of Naomi of the problem in the first five verses here. We could call verses 1 to 5 the plan. Here's where we get Naomi's plan for how to, uh, how to address this situation. Look again at verse 1. She states her intentions. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? We've heard that desire from her before. Back in chapter 1, verse 9, she had expressed the same, the same goal, the same heart desire to lead her daughters-in-law to rest. That hasn't changed. But a lot else has changed in the situation and in Naomi's heart. Think of the comparison. Back in chapter 1, when Naomi wanted rest for her daughter-in-law, the only rest that she could imagine coming to Ruth was to be found in the context of her old life. The only way she might find provision and rest was if she turned around and went back to the pagan land of Moab, back to her gods and to her people. Surely for Ruth, surely in Israel, there would be no rest to be found. Because as long as she's with Naomi, well, God has made her his enemy. You remember she told Ruth, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She wants rest for Ruth, but the only way that could happen in her mind is if she convinces Ruth to go back. Well, now here we are in chapter 3. 
and in terms of their time in Israel, do you see how her hope within the context of the land and people of Israel has changed? Her very statement to Ruth here implies this profound change of mind. It must be. I mean, she, she doesn't reiterate her hope for rest for Ruth and then tell her again to go back to Moab. She has a plan in Israel for the rest that she desires for her daughter-in-law, which means it must be that she was wrong back in chapter 1. It must be that there is indeed hope for Ruth's security within the land and people of Israel. Naomi's been thinking about this ever since chapter 2, verse 20. And she has come up with a plan. Let's hear her plan, verses 2 to 4. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Stop there. This is a tricky situation that we are walking into here. Tricky in a number of ways. This is a tricky situation for Ruth to contemplate. It's a tricky situation for us to understand in terms of understanding Naomi's intentions. One thing that is not difficult is to understand Naomi's intended end to her plan. She clearly has worked up a way to set up events so that Boaz will wind up redeeming Ruth through marriage. That's obviously what she's planning for Ruth. What is tricky for us is to try to, to, try to understand and decide on what are, Naomi's, what, are, what are the intended means that Naomi is trying to employ here to get this to happen. The very words that Naomi has chosen here create an awkward situation. This could wind up being a, an innocent and well-recognized gesture on Ruth's part as this plays out. It could very much be a potentially scandalous situation that she's setting up for Ruth. The tricky part is not verse 3, it's verse 4. Clearly in verse 3, can you see what she's intending for Ruth to do? She is planning for Ruth to influence Boaz's decisions through a number of steps of preparation. In verse 3, she's to wash, she's to pour oil on herself. The ESV says she's to put on her cloak. Most English translations express that as put on your best clothes. You can tell what she's doing here. She's having Ruth prepare herself physically to help this situation go in the way that she wants it to go. She's to employ her feminine wiles uh, as she approaches Boaz with this, with this situation. It's clear in verse 3. Verse 4 is the tricky part. She says to Ruth, But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. What's tricky about that is that almost everything she says to Ruth here, I mean several individual phrases, carry double entendre, in the Hebrew language. These are a series of expressions that are used elsewhere in the Old Testament in reference to sexual immorality and to, and to, uh, to positions of compromise. 
And that's how it is expressed here. It could be the case that Naomi says it like this because she knows the potential for misuse that the situation is setting up. She knows she's setting up at least the possibility of something inappropriate. Maybe that's all it is. Maybe, it's, maybe she's not intentionally trying to, to create that end. But doubtless, what these words do is they build up the suspense for us as the reader in a clear way. We are being presented with ambiguous phrases here, and it leaves us going, what in the world is going to happen that night? What is, what is going to transpire here? And that un- unease makes perfect sense, because no matter what Naomi's intentions are, this is a plan that's going to depend entirely on Boaz's righteousness, on his moral standard. This is a middle of the night, in the dark, exposing the feet of this man so that the cold will wake him up right when it's darkest and when everyone is asleep, uh, to find a woman laying at his feet. This is an incredibly vulnerable position that Ruth is being put in here. And it's vulnerable, not just because of Boaz. This room, this threshing floor room, is a situation that was set up for the good of the community. It was completely open, uh, and it was used by the farmers of the community to go and to thresh their their produce. Uh, It is highly likely that they're not even the only ones sleeping in the large room this night, which is why it's really important that she observe carefully where he lies. This situation will go south very quickly if she accidentally sneaks up to the wrong guy in her effort to engage this plan. I mean, can you hear in all of these descriptions, can you hear how potentially dangerous this is for Ruth? If anything goes wrong, at best it will ruin her reputation and that of Boaz probably. At worst, it could end with a stoning at the end of this series of events. And who even knows how Boaz is going to react to this situation? He is a morally righteous man. He's been depicted as that from the beginning. And he'll wake up to find a woman lying at his feet, waiting for him to tell her what to do next. Who knows if he won't grab her up and carry her into the street and call her out for what has happened. There are so many potential uncertainties in the situation. And in verse 5, Ruth's response to Naomi is, All that you say, I will do. And she willingly casts her fate into Naomi's hands by submitting to her guidance and going along with her plan. Verses 6 to 9, we can see as the execution of this plan. Look with me at verse 6. Here's what happened then. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer stop there. As far as her actions go here in this series of events, verse 6 is exactly right, isn't it? She goes and does just as Naomi had commanded her. Boaz has laid down. He's completely content after a good day of work, good food, good drink, and he goes to sleep. 
He's probably there, as was customary for them, to guard his grain until it was to be picked up and transported the next day. As I said, this is an open area to be used. It's an easy access area for thieves. So it was common for the owners of these field portions to sleep beside their produce while they wait for it to be picked up. And so he does that. And he wakes up, next thing he knows, because he's shivering. The verb there that the ESV translates as startled, it puts it that way because it's almost always used in a, in a situation of fear. It literally means to tremble, usually to tremble with fear. But there's no fear in this situation. It seems like in the context, this is describing his bodily, he's trembling. This, this, is, this was her goal, was to uncover him while he was asleep so that when it got colder at the right time in the night, he would tremble himself awake and need to uh, adjust his covers, which he does. And as he's doing this, here's how it puts it. Behold, a woman at his feet. That's how it expresses it. You can hear his own way of thinking uh, and his shock at this, uh, at this turn of events. We can tell how dark it was in the room even by how he reacts here. There may have been some dying embers of a fire somewhere in the room. There may have been moonlight. He can see enough to see that there's a woman there. Maybe he can see her hair or her clothing. He knows there's a woman at his feet, but he cannot see enough to even see her face and to recognize her. So he has to ask her, who are you? And it's her answer that is especially enlightening here. She answers with something very simple and yet incredibly direct. Here's what she says in response. I am Ruth, your servant. It's incredibly direct because we've gotten used to by now, anytime her name is mentioned, what is the descriptor that goes with it? Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. It's been constant. Long after everyone in the story knows she's a Moabite, the author keeps referring to her as Ruth the Moabite to help us remember that that is a that's on people's mind as they see her. She doesn't see herself that way anymore. She doesn't say Ruth the Moabite. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. It's exactly the humble posture that we would expect of her by now. She's displayed this humility uh, all the way through our story. But we need to understand this is new as far as how she's describing her relation to him. This is not the way she's spoken of him before. Twice in chapter 2, in verse 13, she spoke of herself as his servant, but she used a different word in chapter 2 than she uses now twice in chapter 3. In chapter 2, when she spoke of, of being his servant, she said she was his shifha. This is a lower-class professional servant. It's not the word she uses here. Here she says, I am Ruth, your amat, which is a servant. This is a servant relationship to somebody, but it's of a particular kind. This is a servant relationship that existed in the context of a familial covenant obligation. So, for example, we have in the Ten Commandments, we have the Sabbath command, right? Uh, the seventh day you shall not work. Uh, and it goes on there to describe for them exactly who they were responsible to enforce this with. Every head of family was to enforce this within their covenant family. And it says there, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, or your amat, your male and female servants, or your ox, and it keeps going on. This is a servant who is considered a part of the family unit. 
And she claims that identification in relation to Boaz twice here in verse 9. I am your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Do you see how she uses that familial obligation language, that relationship as the basis for uh, giving this bold request to him to act as her redeemer? Another thing we need to recognize in verse 9 is that Ruth is, for the first time now, she's deviating from the script. I mean, she's done all that, that Naomi had told her to do. But at this point, she was supposed to do nothing. She was specifically supposed to wait and hear him tell her what she was to do next. Remember that? She doesn't do that. She doesn't sit quietly and wait for Boaz amid this very ambiguous and uh, and complicated situation that's been created. She doesn't sit there and wait for him to tell her what to do. Uh, She doesn't leave the situation to anyone's imagination. She comes right out and states what her intentions are and what her desire is. She's not here with any uh, interest in tempting him or trapping him in a situation. She's doing, again, what she has done all the way throughout this book. She's doing, again, what she did in chapter 1. When she swore her oath to Naomi for the rest of her life on the basis of trust in Naomi's God with no knowledge of what would come as a result. She didn't know the future and she stepped out and made this this oath to Naomi. She's doing what she did in chapter 2 when she woke up and struck out toward that field entirely depending on the trust that God would provide her someone who would show favor to her, as she put it. Not knowing what the outcome would be, knowing the potential for abuse and for trouble, she made that decision. That's what she's doing again here in chapter 3. She is insisting upon the path of faith, the path of faithfulness to God. And then she sits and she waits to see what the outcome will be. We talked about this a bit last week. What we're seeing her do is we're seeing her engage in the Christian type of risk-taking. This is a very important example for us to see because we live in a time that seems utterly unwilling to take any of the noble sorts of risks that faithful men and women of the past have given us by way of example. We are a culture very willing to take foolish, ungodly risks. But here we see a faith-driven type of risk that she takes over and over again. It's not a risk that presumes upon God. It's not a risk that sinfully puts God to the test. It is a risk that is made out of an implicit trust in his goodness and his promises to provide. This is what we see her do. And we just cannot fail to notice the example that's being given us here. The way she puts her risk is this. This is the request she makes of him. Spread your wings over your servant. The word that's translated wings here is the same word that's used for, a, for the corner of a garment. Uh, so some translations even go that route with the translation. Spread the corner of your garment over me. And that's fine as well because that's a part of her intention. What we have here is a pun. We have a word that can be used in more than one way. Uh, a double meaning, 
And that allows, that allows this statement to make two points at once, and I think that's exactly what it's doing here. Puns are powerful things in the text of Scripture. It makes me think of Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John 3 when he told him um, uh, that, that, no one, that, that unless one is born again, one cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he used the word that means born again and born from above. And that is the account for Nicodemus' whole confusion. Right? He uses this. Uh, this happens throughout Scripture. It's just beautiful to see the skill that uh, the writers use in recording and that God led his people to use as they were speaking. And this is what we have here. She is intending that he take his garment and cover her with it. Because that act was the same thing that putting a wedding ring on a finger is to us. That is to say, putting an engagement ring on. This was a commonly understood practice. If a man cast his garment over a woman, he was entering into a betrothal relationship with her. I, was inter- I didn't realize that this is, a, this is a practice that is still used today in many Arab Middle Eastern countries. They still do this. We can see, I always think that's, that's interesting to see. Uh, this is how God speaks of his entering into a covenant relationship with Israel. He speaks of it in terms of a marriage. And he does it in a poetic way. Let me read Ezekiel 16, 8 to you. He's going to use typical Hebrew poetry. And here's what happens then. He's going to tell what he's going to do. Then he's going to say it again, the same idea, and, and describe it in another way. But it has the same meaning. This helps us to understand his words. Ezekiel 16.8, God is speaking in reference to his people Israel. And he says, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. Semicolon. Then he says it again. What else, how else can we put this? I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. That's the, what is described and portrayed in the spreading of a corner of a garment over. So Ruth is proposing marriage to Boaz by making this statement. That's what she's doing. Now, I tend to be someone who thinks that the man should propose to the woman. I think there's something fitting there. But if you're a woman here this morning who's married and you proposed to your husband, you can at least know that there is some biblical precedent there. You're not the first one to do it. Ruth did it here. So at least there's that. Um, So this is what she is asking, is for him to spread the corner of his garment over her. But the word is the word for wing. So she is saying verbally, spread your wings over your servant. And that's noteworthy because it's the very same words, by no accident, you can be sure, that Boaz used in chapter 2, verse 12. This is how he described what she had done in her first kindness to Naomi. He said to her there, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. See, if we understand that expression now, we understand him to be speaking of her entering into covenant, taking refuge under the wings of of the God of Israel. And so you see what's happened. Ruth has sought refuge under the wings of Yahweh, and that refuge is realized as Boaz spreads his wings over Ruth. Now, she finds that refuge if, right? She finds that refuge 
assuming that Boaz responds positively to all this. That's why we stopped reading aloud in verse 9, because there is so much hanging in the air at the end of verse 9. There is so much hope. There is so much potential for misunderstanding and for things going wrong. How is he going to respond to this very uncomfortable situation and this sudden request? And remember what we said last week. Even as she appeals to the kinsman redeemer and asks him to redeem as a close relative, we saw last week that this, that whole scenario is optional for Boaz. The law does not require Boaz in his relationship to Naomi's family to redeem. If it were required, Ruth could have been spared a great deal of effort, couldn't she? She wouldn't have had to go through all of this. There is no makeup required to march up to Boaz in the middle of the street and say, hey, you're my kinsman redeemer. Do what the law requires of you. That's all she would have needed to do. This whole thing is happening because he is not legally obligated to take this step for her. And so as we come into verse 10, if it's the first time to hear the story, we don't know what's going to happen. And everything hangs on Boaz's next words. We find those in verses 10 and 11. Let's read verse 10 again as we see the result of this plan. Verse 10 says this, And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So much of the tension is immediately relieved for us, the hearers, the audience, at these statements that Boaz makes. He brings in a whole lot of light and clarity in terms of how he's viewing this situation and in terms of what he understands Ruth to be doing. If you pay attention to what he says, he makes this very clear for us. Here's something he makes clear. How effective were Naomi's plans in uh, using physical attraction and temptation to bring these things about. How effective were those plans? Well, they were not effective at all. They, they have played no role in the situation. In fact, if you go back and read, uh, her intention was for Ruth to be seen by him after he had eaten and drunk, before he laid down. Do not reveal yourself to him until after he has finished eating and drinking, perhaps so that he might be more inclined to be persuaded and to take notice. Well, the way it actually goes down, it seems that he didn't even see her at all before he laid down to go to sleep. And when he finally does see her, it's so dark, he can barely make out that this is a woman in front of him. So does he notice the beautiful clothes? Does he notice the oil with, that she's anointed herself? He doesn't notice any of these things. All of that planning came to naught. And as if to underscore that for us, as if to clear up for us, is he wrestling here? with the compromising notions and the temptations, well, that really gets put to bed pretty quickly for us because he again here for the second time addresses her as my daughter. My daughter. Blessed, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. That really helps us to understand how he is viewing her in this situation. He also recognizes this to be Ruth's intention here because of her help in clarifying things. She didn't wait silently and let him wonder what her intentions were. She immediately went to the appeal for redemption. So he knows what she's thinking. He knows that this is an effort 
so that Naomi's family line might be redeemed. And he says to her, you have made this last kindness greater than the first. The first. You've made this last kindness to Naomi greater even than the first kindness to Naomi. The first kindness was what he praised her about in chapter 2. You remember he praised her at length there for her willingness to abandon homeland and family out of her devotion to Naomi. And as impressed as he was then, he is more impressed here at what she is doing for Naomi. You can tell what his point is. She could have pursued marriage for other ends other than for Naomi's preservation of her line. She could have pursued a husband in order to gain wealth or for love or to find a younger man more capable of providing her lots of children, which is the currency of social status for them. Instead, she's gone after old Boaz. And she's done it for Naomi's sake. He sees it from the beginning. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So immediately now there is a sigh of relief from, the, from, from us, the audience, because of this positive response from Boaz. May you be blessed by the Lord. But if you think that the tension of the story has been resolved, if you think that the climax has been met and it's all just downhill from here, well, you've underestimated the skill of the, of the writer here. You may know as well. I mean, I, I'm thinking of specific instances where the, the best stories are the ones that build to an intense moment, and then you, something happens, and you think that the conflict is resolved, and right as that happens and you start to relax, something else comes that you didn't see coming. And those are the best stories, right? That's what happens here in verses 11 and 12. It's just, it's just brilliant the way that this is presented to us. In verse 11, we're going to get the resolution of one problem only to be blindsided by another problem that we knew nothing about. We've not been told anything about this new problem. Look at verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Sigh of relief. Verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So he doesn't leave us in suspense. He responds definitively, doesn't he? Do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask which is exactly what Ruth just told Naomi that morning, isn't it? All that you have asked of me, I will do. And he gives a reason. We need to understand the reason he gives there in verse 11. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. If we, if we read that and are not careful, that can sound like Boaz is weighing how this will serve him. Redeem you? Well, you have a wonderful reputation from the community that would serve me. Yeah, sure, I'll redeem you. Everyone has this high opinion of you, so absolutely. That's not what he's doing here in bringing this up. What he's doing is addressing the elephant in the room, the elephant that the author has brought up all the way through our story. 
the elephant in the room is her ethnicity, her Moabite heritage. So you can, there seems to be implicit in, in her appeal. She desires this to happen, but there's still the question, is this even possible? Will he be allowed? Will this, will this pass the approval of the town uh, for him to, to redeem her, being that she is a Moabite? Moabites had a terrible reputation at this time in Israel's history. And so he comforts her with that, uh, of that fear by assuring her here, nobody is going to object. It's been three months of uncertainty for Naomi and Ruth, but it's also been three months of the whole town being amazed at the character of this woman, Ruth, as they watched her steadfast devotion and service to Naomi. Here's what they have seen in Naomi, or in Ruth. They've seen that Ruth is a walking, breathing example of the Proverbs 31 woman. You remember how Proverbs ends with chapter 31? This lengthy description of, of godly femininity, what the godly woman looks like. And that chapter ends with verse 31. The last thing it says of this woman is, let her works praise her in the gates. And Boaz literally says, this is what's going to happen. He says, all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. He uses an expression there, a figure of speech. What he literally says is, all the gate of my people know that Ruth is a worthy woman. And of course, this is going to be literally, verbally expressed tomorrow at the gate. I mean, she is the embodiment of what Israel has been shown to be worth and uh, honor in a woman. And the whole town recognizes her as such. So he says, there will be no objection here. Just like that, in verse 11, we have a resolution to the problem. Is Ruth going to find a redeemer? Will Naomi's line be preserved through a redeemer? Will God grant them a redeeming, a redemption? And the answer is yes. The new question is, which one? What kind of redeemer will she be redeemed by? Which redeemer will she have? And I hope you can tell, even in that question, I hope that, you are, that you're recognizing what this says about God's goodness to his people, his willingness to provide. And we need to reflect on this. They have gone from, chapter one, no hope at all for a future for Naomi, to the end of chapter two, a, a glimmer in Naomi's eye of the possibility that God might set up a scenario to grant redemption, to now in chapter three, not only a certain redeemer who has sworn by God's name himself, but potentially two redeemers that will have to fight it out the next day. This is what God has done to provide. And this is a testimony to us. The same God who displays his willingness and his joy to provide in this story is the God to whom you trust your future and the well-being of your family, of yourself, of those that you love. There are some statements that go without saying, right? That, that are so, such common sense, they don't need to be said. Here's one. Um, not every need that I have in this life will be fulfilled in this life. Is that true? Uh, that's, um, of course it is true. We are all mortal. We will all come to a need, a problem at the end of our life that we will not find relief from, and we will die. 
all of us are going to die. Even in that, we have God's promises, right? That in the life to come, we will be given back what we have lost. That there will be provision for those things. But, you know, take, take the life to come and its promises off the table for a moment and just consider something. Every need that I have in this life does not ful find fulfillment in this life. But how many of them do? How many of them have found fulfillment? There may well be an illness that comes to me one day that I don't recover from, and it takes my life. But how many times have I prayed for deliverance from illness, and God has granted it to me? How many times have I pleaded for relief from pain, and it has been given to me? And what about my sins? What about my offenses against a perfect and holy God? How many of those has he pardoned me as his child? How many has he chosen not to count against his people? All but three or four? If he leaves one of my sins unpardoned, one, I will justly suffer everlasting torment to the glory of the righteousness of God. If he leaves one, We mentioned, in just in passing last week, Psalm 103. I'd like to read some of this, some of that psalm to you, so that we could remind ourselves of some things. Uh, he's giving intentional reminders in this chapter in Psalm 103. And let's remember before I read, these are the words of David. These are the words of a man. <coughs> these are the words of a man who spent years of his life sleeping on the ground, running for his life. These are the words of a man who once murdered a close friend in order to have that friend's wife and to hide his own sin. They're the words... They're the words of a man who lived through losing a child in infancy by his own fault. They're the words of a man who lost another son in adulthood and after watching that son betray him and seek his life. These are, in other words, these are not the words of a man, are they, who knows no suffering. <coughs> They're not the words of a man who knows no suffering. They are the words of a man who knows who God is. And so, the, the words of a man who has lived his life with his eyes open enough to see, to really see who this God is in his faithfulness and loving kindness to his children. And this is what he says. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. 
The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. Naomi is stunned at God's provision and care. What about we? What about us? Are we stunned when our Father provides for us? There's a sense, it's true, we, we always stand amazed at his willingness to do good to sinners like us. But that's not what we're talking about here, is it? Should we be surprised, given who God has said himself to be, given who God has shown himself to be? Should we be surprised when our God, our Father, reaches out and cares for us? We ought to guard our perception of the God whom we serve. Can you imagine how this might increase our boldness, our willingness to love, our willingness to risk? If we could more live our lives with the clear sense in in mind that this God is worthy of our trust. His promises are sure. They will never fail. And so as we walk by faith in this life and we see him care for us, we ought not be surprised. It's good for us to allow these, the presence of two redeemers where there was none uh, remind us of God's faithfulness to provide. However, in verse 12, the presence of two redeemers is not really being presented to us as a good thing. Not for the reader, not in a certain way. We have come now to know who Boaz is, to know his character. We know who Ruth is. We know her character. We are cheering for them, aren't we? We want Boaz to redeem Ruth. And so as this curveball is thrown here and the possibility of another redeemer comes into the picture, it puts us back on the edge of our seat. There's a new problem here. A redeemer she will have, but what kind? Will she get Boaz? Will she get someone who has shown on his own initiative a love for the foreigner, who has shown a willingness already to take steps to bless Naomi and Ruth, even when there was no obligation on him to do so? Is that the redeemer she's going to get? Or will she get a redeemer who thus far has only done what the law obliged him to do, which is to say he hasn't done a thing to reach out in care and love toward Ruth. Who's she going to get? Robert Hubbard comments on this uh, absence thus far of resolution. I thought this was good. He says, still, one wonders why none of the kinsmen redeemers had yet stepped forward to fulfill that duty. Since it was optional, not obligatory, perhaps each was waiting for the other to act or each hesitated because Ruth was a Moabitess. That's very possible as an explanation for why nothing's been resolved here. 
I do think this helps us to understand why Boaz hasn't stepped up to do anything yet, because he's an honorable man. He understands the procedure here, and he knows that he is not in the position to have the right to claim this. It may be that that's why he thus far has said nothing. Now that Ruth comes to him with the appeal, though, he swears to her, doesn't he? As the Lord lives, he says. If he is not willing, this nearer relative, I will redeem you. I would just quickly remind you of the um, absence of the legal obligation. I mentioned Deuteronomy 25. I want to read a few verses here to you. We're almost finished, so I think we have time for this. Notice that this is what the law commands in this situation, where a woman's husband has died, she is childless, and the family line then is in danger. It gives an obligation to the brother of that husband, and this explains what happens, what the law says to happen if that brother is unwilling. What's going to be the next provision that the law gives? Listen to what it says there, Deuteronomy 25, 7. If the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And then it's done, and we go on to the next case law. That's the situation. If there is a brother, and he's unwilling to do this, the worst that the law gives, first of all, can you see, in a sense, it is even optional for him. Because there is no punishment that the law gives uh, in such. There's no death sentence or anything like that. The, what will happen to him is, she'll get to spit in his face, and she'll get to uh, call into question his reputation. But that's it then. Life goes on. Even for him, if he really didn't want to do this, there was no forcing. If he's unwilling, though, there is no plan B given in that passage. We can tell from the book of Ruth, it goes into the vague area of the kinsman-redeemer obligations, which we looked at last week, and we noticed that even there, nothing is said about the remarriage situation here. No direct commands. So my point is simply this. It wasn't required for Boaz. It's not even required for the nearer male relative who is living either. He can choose to pass this up. So in a sense, we're back where we were at the end of chapter 2. We're back to hoping that someone will be willing to redeem. And what we're going to find in the next chapter and next week is that when Boaz goes the next day, to look for Ruth's Redeemer, he will find no one who is willing. And so he will do it himself. Now, can you hear the importance of that statement? He will go looking for a Redeemer for Ruth, and he will find no one who is willing. And so he will do it himself. I hope we never have a week in this study that we fail to notice the unbelievable parallels the intentional parallels between this Redeemer situation and what the New Testament will tell us Jesus Christ did coming as our Redeemer. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
And the emphasis is there, that the people he died for were ungodly people. You can tell that's the emphasis because of what he says next. He explains, verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Only Jesus Christ has shown us the love of God which is willing to redeem at such a cost. And one thing is clear. If he is not willing, it is not going to happen. There is no other redeemer given to man who is willing to redeem sinful people. If Jesus Christ will not, we are hopeless. And of course, it goes further than that, doesn't it? Because Jesus Christ is not merely the only one willing He is the only one worthy. And we'll simply end reading here in Revelation 5. Quite a picture. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Boaz will make it very clear tomorrow. No one is willing to redeem Ruth. If he's not willing, it is not going to happen. And we thank God then, don't we, for the line of David. The line of David in which we find, at last, redeemers who are willing and worthy to redeem. Would you pray with me? Father, we are are steadfastly amazed at the ways that you have prepared us to understand the unsearchable mysteries of what you were going to do when you sent your son in the likeness of human flesh in the perfect the perfection of time. You sent him to do just this for us, to take a people hopelessly lost, hopelessly wandering down their own paths to destruction. And out of no obligation, by sheer grace and as a display of your love, to ransom them and to redeem them unto you at great personal cost. We are amazed at your willingness, Father, to send your son for such a task. We're amazed at his willingness to come joyfully for the joy that was set before him to redeem those that he loved. And Lord, we thank you for your scriptures that so perfectly help and guide us to be ready to see what you did in your son when it was time for him to come and do it. It helps us to sense now on this side of the cross 
that all is accomplished. And so, Lord, we thank you and worship you for the gospel message that is ours through this Redeemer. That there is no work to be done now. There is no salvation to those who come to you through their own efforts, trying to work their way into your favor. There is no hope. Romans 4, as you describe, Father, that you regard those who come to you humbly with empty and open hands, ready to believe that you are the God who justifies the ungodly. That is who you are. You've displayed that to us in your Son. And I pray for all of us here this morning, Lord, that we would not leave here with any misconception about that. Pray that we would leave with a clear sense in our mind that anything required to be brought into fellowship with you, to be forgiven of the worst things that we could offer, what is required to be covered of those things and to be separated from them as far as the east is from the west, what is required is to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust your promises when you swear to us that any who seek to come to you through his name, by his work, all will be accepted, all will be forgiven. It's beyond what we can imagine, Lord, and so we thank you for the ways you've so kindly given us pictures to prove, no, no, this is exactly what you have done so that we might spend eternity praising your grace, praising your glorious mercy so that you might be shown to be both the just and the justifier of those who have their faith in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Father. In his name we pray, amen.